Welcome to the Leadership Development Group's Health Ecosystem Leadership Podcast Series. We're excited to have you join us. My name is Tracy Duberman. I'm the founder and CEO of the Leadership Development Group. We are a global coaching and leadership development consultancy with an exclusive focus in the health industry. Over the years, we've had the distinct pleasure of working with some of the brightest talent in our industry, leaders who are clearly making a difference in the work they do to provide high quality care for those in need while designing approaches to enhance health and wellness. The purpose of this podcast series is to showcase how leadership is the essential ingredient to address the ever-growing issues and challenges facing the U.S. healthcare industry. As we know through our work, the great majority of these challenges are too complex and wide-ranging for any one sector to solve independently. This is where a health ecosystem leadership approach pays more than significant dividends. Solutions which emphasize how the various sectors of the health industry operate interdependently are the only ones with the potential to deliver on critical imperatives like affordability, access, and outcomes. During this podcast series, we will introduce you to some of the best and brightest health ecosystem leaders who will share practical examples of how they have successfully demonstrated a collaborative mindset, as well as the critical behaviors that lead to positive outcomes for their organizations, their patients, and the communities they serve. As this is our inaugural podcast, listeners, please stay tuned. We have a bit of technical difficulty in the first few minutes, but it's smooth sailing after that point, and you won't want to miss this exciting interview with Drs. Clasco and Meyer. All right. So welcome to the show. Uh, joining me today are Dr. Stephen Clasco and Bruce Meyer. Steve is the president and CEO of Philadelphia-based Thomas Jefferson University and Jefferson Health, where through his transformative and visionary leadership has steered one of the nation's fastest growing academic health institutions from three hospitals to 14 with annual revenues in excess of $5.1 billion. Bruce Meyer joined Jefferson a little under a year ago as Senior Executive VP of Thomas Jefferson University and Chief Physician Executive of Jefferson Health, serving as the organization's clinical leader responsible for transforming Jefferson Health into a single integrated system with a seamless and consistent patient experience. I can't begin to tell you how excited I am to have the two of you on as my inaugural guests on TLD Group's uh, Helm podcast series. I have been an incredibly big fan of yours, Dr. Clasco, from afar for many, many years. Um, watched your prolific career, have read your books, um, just an incredible fan. And all of the work that you've done really um, has inspired us at TLD Group to have a focus on health ecosystem leadership. So we're really excited to have you on the show. And thank you for doing this. Go, this is great. Yeah, no, no, no. We're, we're really excited. Very, very excited. And um, I know that having met Dr. Meyer recently, uh, I now understand that you're not only an incredibly transformative and visionary leader, but you're also an incredible uh, spot, spotter of great talent. Um, Dr. Meyer and I met about a year ago, and uh, we've been in communication since then, and I'm incredibly impressed with the work that he's doing at Jefferson and all of the work that he did uh, leading up to his position at Jefferson. So thank you, the two of you, for being on the show today. So let me start off um, with you, uh, Dr. Clasco. In, in your book, We Can Fix Healthcare, The Future Is Now, um, and for those of you listening that haven't read the book, it's, it's a provocative uh, sci-fi take on how collaboration is the key to fixing the health system. You talk a lot about the disruptors to healthcare. You name 12 of them. Um, these you consider to be opportunities uh, to make a positive impact within, within healthcare, within the industry. You've made tremendous strides at Jefferson uh, at disrupting the system. And so my question for you to start off is, can you provide one, I know it'll be hard to choose one, but one example of your uh, biggest achievement in disruption at Jefferson, one that's made the biggest impact on the consumers that you serve? Yeah, so I, um, I would say that um, the, the biggest impact that I see is, is our ability to really create a leadership uh, academy. Look, the, the, the fact is that anybody that, that's a faculty member or a doctor 
that graduated 10, 15, 20 years ago is like on another planet as far as what they need. So we created a leadership academy and really invested a lot of money into looking at the, those mid-level folks that are really going to change the culture. And what's different about it that we're excited about is, you know, normally people concentrate on the 20% of your, of your faculty or or medical staff that really gets it because we feel comfortable about that with them, or the 15% that will never get it allowed and ignores that 65% of the middle. Uh, in fact, when we did our study, we found that that, that we spent about 40% of our time on the people that get it because we feel comfortable with them, about 45% of the time on the people that will never get it because they're allowed, and then the least amount of time, the other percent on the people in the middle. So what we said is, look, we're going to train that that 20% to get it to be the, the leaders and the mentors, and we can spend less time with them. We're going to ignore, frankly, the people that just want to complain and will never get it. We call that administrative hospice. Just let them comfortable and go away. And really concentrate our resources on that 65%. And I think what Bruce can tell you is that while we still have a long way to go, he now has, and his new role in July will be as president of Jefferson Health, he has, a, he has now a cadre of physicians, nurses, and others, because it's not just physicians, that can understand the, what the future 10 years from now is going to be and why we need to start doing it today. So we've given him that head start. By the way, we're going to continue to do it because, you know, we're probably at 40, 45, and 15. We still have that 15% of people complaining. But at the end of the day, uh, once we can get over 50%, his job's going to be a lot easier. Excellent. Well, congratulations, uh, Dr. Meyer. My goodness, I think this is the, uh, the, the, the introduction to your new role as president. That's absolutely wonderful. And so what, how does that change in terms of um, the relationship um, between the two of you? And what does it relieve you of, uh, Dr. Clasco, in terms of your role within Jefferson Health? So, you know, it, it always, frankly, encode um, uh, the reason that I brought, you know, Bruce here. You know, Bruce is one of the, you know, top uh, uh, physician leaders in the country. And um, basically what it says is, you know, Bruce, you're accountable for the operations of what is now a very complex, uh, as you pointed out, 14 hospital and 76 site uh, clinical pillar. The reason it's important is we, we've done a very countercultural thing. While other people are divesting the university and their other pillars, we exist on a four pillar model academic, clinical, innovation, and philanthropy. It's really been our differentiator. And philosophically, four equal pillars, certainly not financially. By far the biggest is, is, is uh, the clinical pillar. But if you take the academic pillar, for example, we acquired one of the top fashion design universities in the country, an undergraduate university with 17 NCAA teams. We're now a two-campus, 8,000-student university um, that's healthcare, fashion, design, engineering, and commerce. I'm the president. Literally, the cultural changes that need to happen, what we can do around design thinking for healthcare or healthcare thinking for design, or we're looking at a contemporary African-American studies group with an urban health planning is huge. But I have to be president of a two-campus university. In fact, the chancellor is transitioning out of that, of that old university. So that's going to take up a lot of my time. Our innovation pillar is incredibly expanding. We're going to announce a major venture with one of the top Silicon Valley folks where Jefferson will be the center. That's really, again, the differentiator for us using technology to change healthcare. I have to do that. And we're about to start what will be a campaign, a philanthropic campaign that starts with a B, where that, um, that, that literally, as you know, the leader CEO has to lead that. Now, again, Bruce will be involved in all those things also, but having somebody of Bruce's caliber that can literally lead our, you know, four and a half billion dollar clinical pillar and make him the single accountable person. And we have this great partnership with GE and their their new their new spin out of GE Healthcare actually makes that even even more important for us and them. And having Bruce in charge of that as a single single uh, leader is, uh, is is I think really allows me to do those other things, knowing that that the clinical entity of which we're accountable is uh, is in really really good shape with one of the top leaders in the country. That's great. That actually very very uh, well articulated in terms of the uh, different roles and responsibilities that now you and uh, Dr. Meyer will will split up. 
Um, so, so the question to you, Dr. Meyer, is uh, the organization um, is probably one of the premier organizations in terms of its innovation in leadership. So how is it that you go about assessing for those leadership characteristics for the senior folks within your organization? And as Dr. Clasco said, really at the mid-level and lower level as well, how do, you, how do you find that great talent that can think collaboratively and do the work of innovation? I think you have to look for people who uh, in many ways believe in Dr. Clasco's vision that medicine needs disruption uh, that healthcare in general is an inefficient uh, and, and at times very ineffective uh, vehicle for us to actually care for populations of patients. And while we are very well refined at dealing with very acute situations, the sicker you are, the better we're at it. The less sick you are, kind of the worse we're at it. Um, we have you know, lots of access issues, lots of social determinants of health that we have not dealt with. We have not really dealt with keeping the well well and keeping chronic disease at a low level of chronicity. So you got to look for people who are willing to say, you know, the way that we did it in the past isn't necessarily the best way. Um, people who are willing to think about in innovative ways, how could we do it differently? How could we do it transformatively? Um, you know, there's lots of interesting information and uh, about trying to do hospitals at home. Uh, I think futurists um, and Dr. Clasco is one of the leaders there. You know, are looking at, well, maybe the medical things that we're currently doing in hospitals, the vast majority of that leave outside the ICU kind of care, are actually probably going to occur at home, with home-based care or in micro-hospitals that are very locally, geographically based. The people come to the hospital to have surgery and the immediate recovery post-surgery, or they'll come to the hospital because they're acutely injured in a, you know, in a traumatic event. Um, but otherwise, we're really looking to say, the role of the hospital is really changing radically. And to do, you know, and if you think that way, then you have to find people who are willing to say, well, let me challenge the paradigm and let me, let me look at that and say, all right, could we actually provide better care? How do we provide high quality care and high outcomes, high quality outcomes for patients who, if they're not going to come to us, how do we get to them and provide that same level or better levels of care? On top of that, you have to look at people who are willing to think about artificial intelligence as an ally and not as an enemy. Uh, you, know, you, you may have seen the recent article that said, uh, um, that, said that artificial intelligence is going to turn the doctor into a clerk uh, doing simply um, you know, clerical work. Don't, I, don't, I don't personally believe that. I look at artificial intelligence as a way to facilitate how do we transform the healthcare dynamic for individuals and populations and you got to look for leaders who are thinking that way, because if you believe that artificial intelligence is just going to make your job meaningless, then you're probably not going to embrace artificial intelligence and what it ought to be able to bring to patients and their families. Mm -hmm. That's just one example. I, I think that's a great example. You know, when we think about health ecosystem, um, within Jefferson, you have your own very massive ecosystem that's made up of inpatient, outpatient, acad academia, you have an innovation center, et cetera. You, all, you can also think about ecosystem just in terms of the variety of sectors that touch a consumer as it relates to health, pr provision of sick care, and wellness. Talk to me a little bit about living in this state of transition where you're moving from a focus on sick care to a focus on population health and wellness. I know you have a hub-to-hub -hub, uh, vision as opposed to a hub-and-spoke, which is fantastic. How, though, do you make that transition? I know you talked a bit about leadership and, and you've got hospital presidents as part of your 14 that you're managing, but how do you, in, how do you engage them in making that mindset shift that you so beautifully articulated? Yeah, I think the challenge is um, thinking very differently about what uh, leadership roles look like and what it means to lead an organization. Uh, and what are creative partnerships that we have with all of the other services that touch patients and their families? Um, I think our goal is clearly to be an integrated health system that uh, looks at you from wellness through acute illness and back to wellness. Um, and that means we've got to have partnerships or integrated systems for post-acute care. But more importantly, we've got to have things around social determinants of health. Steve's done a brilliant and innovative thing around um, our, our um, 
uh, our, our Health Disparities Institute here at Jefferson, and, and probably uh, worth touching on that for a few moments. But we have to think about how are patients be really being affected in their own community, and how do we provide care? And that care has to include things like pharmacy, things like post-acute care, things like home nursing, things like that hospital at home, those micro-hospital environments. Instead of saying you need to find three buses in order to get to a large academic medical center, how do we bring the talents of that large academic medical center into the community um, and then pull you in only for the really expensive things that are very high risk, that require intensive resources, that can only be provided in limited ways because it's just too expensive. Mm -hmm. That list is actually relatively short. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Um, at the end of the day, you're running a business. And um, as part of that, you have your leaders that are acting at the local level, all of the hubs around Jefferson Health, and you have a system that you're managing. So my question is, how do you engage your hospital leaders to think like a system while acting locally? Sure. I think you have to respect and honor uh, tradition and local culture because at the end of the day, care is delivered locally, fundamentally. Um, but at some level, you've got to layer on top of that uh, a philosophy around high reliability, around a culture of safety, uh, around what we have described as the One Jefferson campaign, where uh, you can warrant to our community, whether that's a patient, a family, or even someone who has never touched a Jefferson provider, if you come to a Jefferson facility or you encounter a Jefferson provider, you can rely upon us to provide a high level of care, a high experience. Uh, high quality experience to provide a high quality outcome and to think of you more as the person who has a disease and how that disease affects your life and your family's life than to think purely about the disease and how we fix the disease itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That philosophy has to get inculcated and we have to talk about it. You can never over explain and over communicate, but we've really got to, you know, leaders have to buy it, but then they have to look at their local culture and say, okay, how do we apply those principles using our local culture? To greatest effect. Yeah. And, and, and let me let me just add one thing. I mean, one of the real differentiators of Jefferson is that we have a very pluralistic model. So I think one of the problems in academic medical centers you're defined by being in or out, whether you're not you're employed by the university, yeah. and it, it often creates this animosity. I mean, and a lot of it is you know, you know, um, you know, Bruce and I come from somewhat different backgrounds, but we both understand private practice. I started my career in private practice. You know, really didn't do much academically. Bruce has been a, a more accomplished academic, but understands uh, private practice. The simple fact is, at Jefferson, being a full member of Jefferson has nothing to do with who pays your check. And that's an incredibly different thing. We were the number 16 hospital in the country. I mean, ahead of you know some amazingly great places, um, and probably the only one in the top 20 U.S. News and World Report where our number four orthopedic group, not one is employed by us. Our number two ophthalmology group in the country, not one is employed by us. So, so, but we do have some requirements for wearing a Jefferson name and that's around quality, that's around sharing data, and that's around in a general sense, uh, I hesitate to use the word, but loyalty. And, and I use loyalty more of citizenship, teaching our, our students and, and, and being proud to wear a Jefferson coat. That changes everything. We've had, just to give you an example, two of the top private cardiology groups in the city come to us and, you know, without getting into details, a hybrid model because mm -hmm. they're concerned about what it means to be a private doc. They didn't want to be employed. And they knew if they went to any other academic medical center, it'd be you're in or you're, you're, or you're out, totally based on whether or not you're employed. Mm -hmm. They could come into Jefferson and be part of us. Uh, in, in a very different model. So mm -hmm. I, I do think that, that that's, a, that's a huge differentiator in thinking globally and acting locally. I think you're 100% right. Many predict, as you have said, Dr. Clasco, that uh, there's going to be far fewer hospitals in the future than there are today. You're now made up of 14. You've got hospital presidents that are managing many of those hospitals, which in the next three, five decade will be closed. So how do you ready your system to thrive in this new future state of fewer hospitals and more services at the, at the home, really, at the I, consumer I hired somebody like Bruce to do it because it's <laughs> But, um, look, I, you know, I mean, my, my newest book is called Bless This Mess, Picture Story of Healthcare in America. And I think that one of the points I make in that book, because I tried to do it in somewhat of a funny way, is um, 
the future is going to change. We're not going to be, we're not going to be the only thing in, in the world that doesn't join the consumer revolution. So when I say stuff like, you know, um, we're going to need 400 less hospital beds and people act like I'm, you know, preaching, you know, Satanism or something. The fact is that's just the reality because there's going to be less things that need inpatient pieces. You're going to, most of the medical stuff will be at home because that's better for patients, less expensive. There's going to be micro hospitals, hip replacements and knee replacements, which, which are, you know, in some community hospitals, 35% of their revenue are going to be outpatients. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's going to be non-competitive. It's a little bit like colonoscopies. You know, people are still doing colonoscopies in hospitals. Well, you know, it's, it's, $400 $400 if you get it done in an outpatient center and probably less chance of infection and $4,000 if you get it done in a hospital. We started a, a something called Jeff Connect, which is one of the largest self-run uh, telehealth programs, uh, especially telehealth programs in the country with, with 24-7 emergency department folks. We could move almost 70% of our non-trauma, non-ambulance patients out of our expensive ED with a strategically aligned payer partnership. You know that stuff's going to happen. So to your point, the key is, is, is being honest that it's going to happen, preparing your leaders for that, and not, you know, it, it's like, you know, I don't want to get into politics, but it's a little bit like climate change. We can, we can deny it, or, or if we know an earthquake is coming, we can say, well, hopefully it doesn't. And even if you hope it doesn't, you still ought to be prepared if it does. So, so you know, um, you know it, I'll just give you sort of a little anecdote. One of my uh, new good friends has been a guy named Hamont Tanasia, who is uh, the managing principal for General Catalyst, a very large VC uh, in Silicon Valley. And he just wrote a book called Unscale, uh, the, the New Economy in the Age of AI. He was one of the initial investors in Airbnb. And, and the concept is, used to be if you wanted to build a bigger hotel than, than Marriott or whatever, you build a bigger and better hotel. Now you build, build no hotel and just provide better customer service at places that already exist. And, and the funny thing he said to me, he said, you know, we're interested in you because you're both the thesis and the antithesis to, to, to my theory. He said, you're the antithesis because you've gone from, you know, about 800 beds to 2,800 beds. So that's the opposite of unscaling. But everything you talk about nationally is healthcare with no address. The Jefferson will be defined by the care and caring. Not, I always say when I gave interviews that we'll be successful five years from now. If, Tracy, if you call me, if you come to Philadelphia and say, where's Jefferson? And people look confused. What do you mean, where's Jefferson? Jefferson on my TV or Jefferson on my iPhone or Jefferson in 12 micro hospitals or 19 urgent care centers? Oh, you mean the place where really, really sick people go for transplants? That's 10th and Walnut. And what he said is, I have no idea how you're going to go from here to there. Uh, but, the, but the fact is that, that part of Bruce and my responsibility as, as senior executives is to recognize that that's probably the reality we're going to live. We don't have to do it today. We just had a meeting with our board about that. How do we best serve the community in places that might not be traditional hospitals in our hub and hub model, but better serve the community? And getting even our board, because remember, our whole model, first in the nation, we've done $4 billion of asset acquisition without writing a check. Yeah. And it's been governance as currency. Now, the negative of governance as currency is that while our board has done a miraculous job in thinking like a system, if you came from one of our, uh, you know, one of our acquired slash merged communities, they don't want to hear that that hospital is closed. Yeah, exactly. But if we can educate them that we can provide a better care for that community, if that becomes a freestanding ED with, you know, these services and opioid services. And, you know, I'll give you one real, real live example. We're, we're, um, we, we, we've started this incredible partnership with National Jewish Health, the number one uh, um, respiratory uh, academic medical center of the country. They're in Colorado. It sort of fits our creative partnership model. It just so happens our number one area of DRGs in our, in our primary and secondary service area happens to be uh, one of the hot hospital groups that we are called ARIA, Northeast Philadelphia, as the most respiratory disease in, in certainly in our region and, and in some cases the country. Why, you know, a lot of folks in the welding industry, you know, middle class, you know, union, smoker, you know, type thing. Well, you know, in some respects, from the population health perspective, they'll be the center of that. That'll be the center of where the research is done and, and the lung transplants are done. That'll be, that'll be our academic medical center. But they're excited about how we can impact that service area. Uh, so National Jewish will be out there. 
Mm-hmm. So we, we need to educate the board and the community that that's doing more for them uh, of, uh, of having Jefferson, you know, be, be merged with them than whether or not cardiovascular surgery is done exactly at that hospital or the hospital five miles away that has a leapfrog A cardiac surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, how much of the, uh, the, the transformation that you're going through right now is inclusive of collaborations outside of the traditional hospital uh, uh, clinical care delivery? What, what other types of collaborations are you doing maybe with folks within pharma or payer or social services, government, community? Well, I'll start on a general level, Bruce, and then you can, you can so I, I give you three real quick ones and, and Bruce, feel free to elaborate. One is with GE. Um, you know, um, we started a, uh, uh, I would argue the most innovative relationship in the nation with a large um, a healthcare company. And people forget that well, GE has had its issues in power and aviation, oil, and others. GE Healthcare is really strong. That was part of the announcements uh, of this week. But, but the, the simple fact is it's a literally embedded joint eight-year year deal that, that really brings 30 or 40 GE folks into Jefferson. Mm-hmm. They shared risk model. So we, we had uh, a goal of $130 million in, in growth and uh, in revenue and expense reduction that if they didn't achieve it, I would not get my goals, Bruce would not get his goals, and GE would not get their goals. In fact, mm-hmm. the G, G, whether or not Bruce or I would be, still be here if we didn't, uh, the GE guys made it clear that they wouldn't be. Well, the fact is we achieved it. Next year, it's all around using the incredible innovations they have in access and, and, and turning call centers into command centers that, that they'll be sharing with us. But the fact is if you come into Jefferson now, you wouldn't know who's a GE person and, and who's a Jefferson person. <laughs> The second one, we just announced a $2 million uh, gift from Navis Healthcare, which is a for-profit population health thing, to create, with Jefferson, uh, bring in somebody, one of the top people in the country, to create a professorship in population health. It's really getting it done. Talk about a partnership. And then the third one I give you is with Livongo. Livongo is this great uh, diabetes management uh, company uh, that's partly owned by that same Haymont Tunisia. And while we're one of their largest vendees, um, we actually have a development partnership with them that as they expand beyond diabetes and technology, that Jefferson will be, will, will be you know, part of that from, a, from a being able to share in the revenue. Right. Excellent. So Bruce, you might want to elaborate on either them or, or any of the others. Sure, yeah. Um, I, I don't know that I can elaborate more in the sense that I think you've described it eloquently. I, I would add a few. Um, we have a burgeoning partnership with um, Avia, which is a uh, structured think uh, sort of think tank approach that has practical applications for the managed Medicaid population. We know we have a large uh, health disparity issue, but we have a very large Medicaid population in our region because we're you know we're in urban centers and as well as suburban and and um, rural areas where we've got lots of Medicaid patients and those Medicaid populations have very different issues around their care. And this is really a way for us with um, other significant national players, Geisinger, Providence, um, uh, you know, large scale folks, Kaiser is involved in this as well, where we're trying to figure out and apply best practices across the country into a managed Medicaid population to do that. We have an interesting burgeoning uh, program with Horizon uh, Blue Cross in New Jersey, where we are looking at a Medicare Advantage program um, that is really a um, purpose-built built network purely for Medicare Advantage, mm-hmm. where we're basically directing patients to you know, both facilities, but more importantly, doctor practices where they're focused on the Medicare population and not as worried about, I've got to you know, get the appropriate payer mix in order to make my nut every month kind of thing. It's really purpose-built uh, kind of work uh, in our region to take care of Medicare patients, we know the Medicare population is growing significantly. Very non-traditional approach um, around those kinds of things. We're, we're obviously involved in some of the same programs that other folks around the country are, you know, Medicare Shared Savings. We're involved in the CPC Plus program. We are working heavily around trying to transform our primary care payment structure. Um, much as, uh, actually, this is Navis Health, probably their, their um, 
Cornerstone Project, you know, they've worked in Hawaii where they have taken essentially every single primary care provider and moved them away from a fee-for-service model purely into a fee-for-value model. <laughs> Or they get a structured PMPM, so they have a baseline payment, and then they have metrics to hit in terms of well-being and screening exams and uh, care of chronic disease. That that's how they, you know, candidly make their living, um, and it has nothing to do with I submit a bill and then I argue with the insurance company whether I submitted all the appropriate paperwork, et cetera, et cetera. They're changing the lives of those primary care practitioners so that they can spend more time with patients and really focus on true population health rather than on acute care management or acute exacerbations of chronic disease. Mm -hmm. We're looking to see how do we apply those same principles for populations here in the greater Philadelphia region and the southern New Jersey region to see if we can do that away from an island. You know, there's, there's a hypothetical advantage, like it's hard for patients to move in and out of an island. True. Um, but I would argue that most of our patients don't really want to travel 100 miles you know, or 200 miles to another city in order to give specific kind of care, or they, they can't. Uh, so they want to get it locally, and they want to find a way where their cost, because this is what's happened in the United States. You know, We've shifted cost onto the individual away from the employer to a greater degree. That's not to say employers are not paying a significant burden. But individual, you know, the largest cause of individual bankruptcy in this country is uh, health care mm -hmm. debt. Mm -hmm. So we need to find ways to manage patients in ways that are more cost effective, that are more local, so that they can actually afford the health, you know, the healthcare that we can provide. Mm -hmm. We've we've spoken a lot uh, so far about uh, the role of providing care. Um, we know that care provided really only makes up what less than 10% of, of, of an individual's wellness. The rest are other things um, that either Jefferson is or, or is planning to provide a focus on. So my question to you now is, what, how are you addressing social determinants? If the focus really is about population health, how are you employing your resources to focus on those things that are, uh, that are not necessarily about providing care? So, so it's a great question. And, and, you know, as you may know, we had the first college of population health in the country led by David Nash, who's still our dean. And, you know, moving that from philosophy to practice is really the key because David for 20 years has been saying that 80% of your, we spend 80% of dollars on, to your point, what creates 10% of care. So the first, you, have, you know, look, I think there's a great, um, there's a great quote from Upton Sinclair. It says, it's hard to get someone to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. Yep. And, and, and the first thing that I started with, and I made a very, imagine this, a provocative statement uh, at Philadelphia. I said that, you know, if any of the chairs of the boards of the Philadelphia not-for-profits, whether that's the providers or the nonprofit payers, really cared about health equities, they would have 25% of the CEO's personal goals be what's happening in Philadelphia, not does their hospital have a bigger MRI than the hospital across the street. Yes. Because one of the studies I had done while ago is I looked at every health system and hospital's website and mission, and it was always around quality, community engagement, health disparities, diversity. And then I looked at how the CEO got paid, and it was always about EBITDA, hospital census, do the doctors in neurosurgery and orthopedics still like to play golf with me, and how are we doing U.S. News and World Report? So what I said, not facetiously, is if you want to know what that health system is going to look like 10 years from now, ignore the website, ignore what the board says, look at how the hospital CEO gets paid. So, so because one of the things that would happen is if all of us had 25% of our personal goals be based on what's happening in Philadelphia, it would talk force the heads of Jefferson Penn, Drexel, Temple, Cooper, et cetera, and the head of IBC to talk to each other about those things. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to take that out to the next level, Steve, if you even look at the mission statements of for-profit pharma and biotech and insurance companies, they all have in their mission statements that they're, they do what they do to improve the health of the communities they serve. But the incentives are not aligned. Well, that's, I mean, a whole, that, that's a whole nother problem. The reason I said start with not-for-profits yes. is you know, I'm on the board of the New York Stock Exchange Company, and my role as a board member in that company is to the shareholders. And, and if, you know, if you're a for-profit healthcare company based in Dallas, right. you know, um, your primary role as a board member is not, you know, how are the kids in Philadelphia getting vaccinated? That's one of the things you'd like to see. 
my our primary role as a not-for-profit, whether it's you know myself or or the head of IBC or the head of Penn, should be you know how are we doing in changing care in Philadelphia? Now here here's where I get excited though, and we've been spending a lot of time on this, and it's something that you know one of the things that I loved about bringing Bruce in here, he's he's really been uh, one of the leaders in this is. We can start to think about how technology can be used. We, we just got invited as an as a, a associate for the World Economic Forum. And why was I excited? There's only five or six academic medical centers that are part of that. Because I can now talk to a company like Nestle or, or Amazon about, you know, we know that food is one of the most important things. And, and you know, we have the greatest discrepancy in life expectancy in, in, in almost the country here in Philadelphia. And when we look at it, one of the big, biggest determinants is the food that those people eat, mm-hmm. you know? And so it used to be, well, what can you do about it? I mean, there's six Whole Foods where I live and there's bodegas, you know, in, in the areas where, well, now where the grocery store is doesn't matter anymore, right? I mean, there's Instacart, there's Amazon. If we could take some of the dollars we're spending on combating obesity and work with Amazon or Instacart, and maybe figure out a way, and I, I was just in Washington, D.C., talking to folks like Senator Booker about this yesterday. If we, rather than spending some of the money on, you know, what are we going to do after these two-year-olds become obese, saying, what if we worked with Blue Apron or Instacart to incentivize them to latch on to electronic food stamps and maybe subsidize some of that organic food or Blue Apron? Because people want their kids to get healthy food, they just don't have access to it. And in 1995, you couldn't get access to it because, you know, you can only walk to where you could walk to. Now, with Uber Eats and, and Instacart and Amazon and Whole Foods, that doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. by the way, food stamps are not handing, you know, S&H green stamps to somebody. They're all electronic credit card. Mm-hmm. So it's not impossible to see where Amazon and Instacart and Uber and the federal government and the Medicaid extension state government and the, and the organic grocery stores and the make your own stuff with Blue Rayburn or whatever could get together and say, what would happen if we delivered food to those people? What would be saved over the next five or 10 years? And that's true population health. Absolutely. So, so that's, what that, that's honestly the kind of thing when, 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 I, when I go to the federal government, like I did yesterday, I meet with five senators. I never ask them for, for dollars for Jefferson. In fact, what I say is you should not give a cent to Jefferson Penn, Temple, Drexel, or whatever individually. What you should do is put 30 or 40 or $50 million into Philadelphia that we could access to partner with those technology companies to do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's great. What you're talking about, though, you're, you are an N of one. I have an N of two in this room today, you and Bruce. You, this we have is the a, same hairdo, though, so, so. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can replace each other. <laughs> Something to be maybe, said, maybe right? It's not exactly the same what's under. He, he, he's much better at operating than I am. <laughs> Whatever it is, I want it. But w- what you're talking about really is a, a different a mindset shift and a different way of leading. Yeah. Um, we, we need to replicate your thinking amongst all leaders within the industry. I would also venture to say within government as well, but let's focus on the health industry. How do we do this? How do we do this work? How do we enable the leaders within Jefferson, let's start there locally, to think more like an ecosystem leader? Bruce? Yeah, I think, you know, it, two things. One is we got to enable Steve to be able to tell the story appropriately and because uh, that's a critical because at some level this is an education issue. Um, I think the second thing is, and, and Steve alluded to it earlier, you know, we have a leadership academy. We need to train the next generation. We have a, we, we're, I think, the third largest graduate medical education program in the country. We need, to, we need to train these kids to think this way and think very differently about what is the health care that they need to provide and what are the paradigms under which they provide it. And, and get away from the idea of the only thing that we have a responsibility to train people around is the you know, acute care and the acute exacerbation of a chronic disease. You got to think about how do I provide care for a population of patients and how do I keep people out of my hospital? Mm -hmm. And how do I create incentives, as Steve has articulately described, that say, well, there's actually value in doing that. And as I create value, you know, I won't suffer from an income standpoint. Um, And so the paradigms of how we pay people, 
have to change, and we've got to figure out how to do that more effectively. We and those are those involve partnerships with payers and all those kinds of things. But as we create value in the system, how do we share that value with our community, and how do we change the paradigm of how people look? Because again, as Steve sort of you know alluded to, if if the only way that I make my money is by piecework, then I'm going to do a lot of piecework. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we, what we've got to say is that we want to incent you to do things other than piecework. We want you to think globally about how do we improve the health of our community. Okay. Um, and you can still make a good living doing that. Yeah. It's those paradigms. And so it's, it, we have a pluralistic model, but inside that pluralistic model, we got to, you know, this is part of why we have an ACO is we have to be able to share the money and it's a, you know, it's a sad, but true fact so that people aren't disincented to try to cling to the old system because that's the only way they can see their themselves making a living. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just add that, you know, you know, one of my aha moments is I had, I got a chance to work with Apple in the pre iPhone era. And if you think about what was going on at that time, everybody was thinking of the computer industry as a computer industry. And, you know, what are you going to do with laptops or what are you going to do with the new operating system? And, you know, Apple stock was, was in the tank because they weren't doing much with either. Steve Jobs came out with the thing holding 200 MP3s. The stock went down like 30% when he did that. But what was miraculous about that and what was great for me being sort of on the inside was he was recognizing that his industry was going through a once in a multi-generational change from a computer industry to a digital lifestyle. And he was putting his stake on that. I've recognized, and you know, it's not that I'm, I'm more brilliant than anybody else, because everybody if they, in their heart of hearts knows this. We're going through a once in a multi-generational change from hospital companies to consumer health entities, from B to B to B to C, from the physician administrator as the boss to the patient as the boss. The only difference between, frankly, me and other academic or certainly hospital leaders is, first of all, you know, Bruce and I are a little younger, not much, but a little younger, you know, so we're not just trying to hold on and say, you know, it's going to be a mess and it's going to be 180 degrees, but, you know, I'll be gone. And the second thing is we're willing to say, what's going to be obvious 10 years from now and do it today. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I think one of the greatest quotes I heard that, that, that drives me is from John Scully, the former CEO of Apple. He said, you know, stop talking about things like telehealth. He said, we don't talk about telebanking. We don't get up in the morning and say, I think I'm going to telebank. It's just that surreptitiously, over a relatively short period of time, we've gone from 90% of the banking being done before 4 o'clock in a place called a bank to 90% of the bank, more than 90% of the banking being done on your little phone. And by the way, the technology, you know, some of, it, some of it's been technology. Some of it's just been a mindset. Yeah. So if you start out with the fact, that, and I believe this, that 47% of healthcare will be virtual or at home, then you can say if you're, if you're a good healthcare leader, you're starting to look to that future. You're training your docs, as Bruce said, to be ready for that. You're thinking about how many hospital beds you should have. If you're just a leader like Gateway, and in some cases Dell were, to say, yeah, that might happen someday, but not, not this quarter, which frankly a lot of my colleagues look at. And by the way, we can have, you know, I'm very, very proud that we've done all this disruption and we're an A-plus rated, please, and for five years in a row we'll, we'll have reached our budget. But, you know, look, our, our board knows we can have a higher net operating income if we, if we thought peace work, like Bruce said, and we're willing to sacrifice some of that, not, not enough to be, have, have large losses, but sacrifice some of that to, to get ready for that 10 years. I mean, spending yeah. $30 million in, uh, in, uh, in, in telehealth back in 2013 was, was, was not the smartest thing for our quarterly uh, uh, income at a time where other revenue was going down. But the fact is, it was the right thing to do to differentiate us. By the way, the reason Bruce and I are being viewed by a lot of people as two, two top position leaders is because we were willing to take that no limits approach. Yeah. So, so five years from now, Bruce and Steve, you are right now a 14 hospital system, 5.1 billion annual revenue. What do you look like in five years from now? Well, for one thing, we'll, we'll, we'll be an 18 hospital system because we have an LOI with uh, Einstein Health Network and we're hopeful, hoping that that will, will get done. But um, look, I, I would just say that, um, you know, I, I would put it real simply. That would be uh, an entrepreneur, we'd be, the example the people around the country, in some cases the world, go say, how can you be both entrepreneurial and academic? We're not trying to be, you know, a traditional Ivy League, you know, uh, piece, but we're a top 
top 10 hospital system, health system that is entrepreneurial and academic where, where care, you know, starts at home and, and, and goes out to, to, to everything from urgent care to hospitals, um, that the definition of the way that we provide care is how we provide care, not where it is, what we call healthcare with no address. That we're teaching students the way students learn, that we're uh, uh, an interprofessional piece using design and interprofessional learning in a very different way, and that the real engine that's driving us is innovation. Mm -hmm. And we've partnered with folks from Silicon Valley here in, in the United States, innovations in China, India, Italy, wherever, to drive different healthcare innovations that anybody around the world can say the easiest place to work with to disrupt and transform healthcare is Jefferson. Mm, very nice. Very nice. Bruce, do you agree? Anything to add to that? 100%. I would simply add that um, I think that patients can and families and people who are not patients, people who are well, know how to access a Jefferson provider through their phone or their iPad or their laptop or, what, or whatever device they choose and get good advice about their life to help keep them healthy, to keep their disease managed if they have one. Um, I, I frequently tell people, you know, the most ludicrous thing we do in medicine is that we manage your blood pressure by having you come to the office twice a year and measure it in front of the doctor. Um, what relationship do those two data points have with the rest of your life is pretty tenuous. Mm -hmm. Yet that's how we make decisions on whether we give you meds or what meds we give you or how many meds we give you or how frequently we give you meds. That's kind of crazy. It ought to be that we interact through that digital device and with you on a continuous basis um, so that we can, in fact, improve your health, decrease your chance of having a complication, deal with your complication and get you back to health. We ought to be measuring and that we'll be at the forefront of measuring what I think of as true outcomes of healthcare, not whether or not we gave you an aspirin when you came to the emergency room with chest pain, but how rapidly did you go back to work and normal lifestyle? And how did you go back to the activities of daily living and the things that give you pleasure in life? How did we return you to your family intact? And how long did it take us to do that? That those are the things we measure and not the things that, that are process measures and hemoglobin A1C is a lovely thing, and everyone reports it nationally, but at the end of the day, it's just a proxy measure for whether or not your blood sugar has been high or not. And that isn't a way to measure whether or not you have a stroke or a heart attack or your kidneys fail or you have you know, eye problems or that kind of thing. It's really just a marker for are you at bigger risk for that. Mm. So rather than measuring that hemoglobin A1C, we ought to be talking to people at home about how do we prevent you from having those complications yeah, and ensure your health. I would just add to that. When we think about evidence-based care, we often think about which drug should I give and that kind of thing. But it's yeah. also processes. I mean, you know, we tell people you, you're going to need your rest. And then we do blood pressures Q2 hours where we're, you know, putting on the lights. And there might be absolutely zero evidence that in this particular condition, the patient's there for they need a blood pressure Q2 hours. But if, if the guy 40 years ago, the doctor 40 years ago said for this condition, I'm going to write an order. Even the word order sounds a little weird, but I'm going to write an order for blood pressure Q2 hours. He's not getting up every two hours. So, you know, so the fact is, you know, and, and this is where design comes in. We, with our design team, we developed the circadian nightlight. <laughs> At least they don't have to put on the lights. So the question becomes, you know, yes, rest is probably more important than getting their blood pressure every two hours in, in, in a lot of cases. Um, but more importantly, figure out ways that you don't have to turn on the light and turn off the light for, 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 for things that will, will get them up every two hours and then tell them you need more rest. And that needs to trickle down to the way in which every individual within the system thinks yep. that their, their mindset is around the consumer. Yep. How can we make this a better experience? Okay, I, I, I have one last question for each of you. Um, and, and let's think outside the box of, of healthcare in particular. And let's think outside the box of you guys being you know, top, the top two in my mind, physician leaders. But just as leaders, what do you want your legacy to be? Bruce, you start. Um, I'm a huge fan of the Jackie Robinson quote that is, life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. I, I would like to feel like uh, my community is healthier, um, my community is happier, and my community is more productive because of the things that we did to change their health. And I would say um, what I'd love my legacy to be is that I proved President Trump wrong that healthcare is complicated. 
that I think you know that that, that we um, you know uh, one of my colleagues said we have a, a Star Wars clinical delivery system and a Fred Flintstone healthcare uh, healthcare uh, uh, process delivery system. So you know I want my legacy to be that you know because of what we've done in Jefferson, we've really made some changes. I'll, since he uh, since Bruce brought up a quote, I'll bring up a quote that I use all the time. You know when Jason Kidd went to the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, you know, and he got all excited. He said, "I'm going to turn this team around 360 degrees." <laughs> a lot of turning stuff around 360 degrees, and then self-congratulating ourselves. You know, I, I my goal is that at the point that I leave Jefferson, that that Jefferson has, in some cases, moved things from 180 degrees from the way that we deliver care in a positive way around how we pay physicians, how we deal with end-of-life issues, how we interact with pharma, how we interact with insurers, you know, how we interact with leaders. Uh, and at the end of the day, most importantly, that the patient views themselves as the boss and Jefferson as a partner. If I can do that, you know, and maybe not move 180 degrees, but at least move the needle, then I will be able to go off and um, uh, go back to becoming a DJ and feel pretty good about my 40-year yeah. career in health. <laughs> That's right. For those of you that don't know Steve personally, I, I understand this. I, I haven't seen you actually uh, at the turntable, but I do understand that you're an incredible DJ. Stevie K, the DJ, only for benefits. I don't do it for for profit. But. Oh, so you're not available for weddings no. and bar and bat mitzvahs, unless, unless they're charity. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I um, I thank the two of you very, very much. You are our inaugural guests on our Helm uh, podcast. I do have to say that um, it has been an incredible honor and pleasure to interview two Helm leaders. The two of you exhibit what we have researched, uh, and we know makes for successful performance um, for health ecosystem leadership, which is what's needed today to transform the industry. Uh, you both have demonstrated how you envision a, a new type of future in terms of uh, health delivery and wellness, uh, how you can uh, align multiple stakeholders that may be coming to the table with diverse uh, uh, goals and objectives, uh, how you're able to manage boundaries and obstacles, and uh, continuously acting and learning, which is obviously a, a forefront to the mindset that you, that, you, that you both demonstrate beautifully. So thank you very, very much. Thank and uh, I'm sure my doing, audience. Thank you for doing this podcast. I think uh, Bruce and I will be listening to it even when we're not on it. So um, Great. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We appreciate Absolutely. it. Okay. Thank you so much. Same with you. Take care. All right. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. For those of you interested in learning more about leadership, please visit us at TLD Group's website. Join us for more interviews with health ecosystem leaders during our podcast series. And of course, stay tuned for the release of our book entitled From Competition to Collaboration, How Leaders Cultivate Cross-Sector Partnerships to Deliver Value and Transform Health. Thank you for joining us.